You're listening to the Rethink Retail Podcast. Today's episode is hosted by Rethink Retail top retail influencer, Nicole Leinbach. In addition to being a member of our Tri, Nicole is the founder and publisher of RetailMinded.com. RetailMinded is a well-respected retail industry resource that has been recognized worldwide for its leading business insights since 2007. In this episode, Nicole sits down with Jeremy Kai. Jeremy is the founder of Italic, which is a groundbreaking new marketplace that works with the world's leading retail manufacturers to bring consumers brandless, luxury-grade products, all at affordable prices. So if you haven't heard of Italic already, all you need to do is hop on a TikTok or Instagram. They are all over the place. During his conversation with Nicole, Jeremy shares his journey to founding Italic, which he did at just 23 years old. And he also dives into how he grew the marketplace into one of Fast Company's top 10 most innovative retail companies of 2021, which is no small feat for anyone, but especially for someone in their early 20s. And dear listeners, if you haven't done so already, please show your support by liking and reviewing us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those reviews, they really help us secure great guests to have great discussions with, which, by the way, if you want more from Rethink Retail, and I know you do, you're in luck. We are now airing two new episodes per week, every week on Monday and Wednesday. And this Wednesday, we have Parachute Home founder Ariel K joining host Julia Hare on the show. So make sure you subscribe to our channel and stay tuned for that. And now on to today's episode. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Rethink Retail podcast. I'm Nicole Leinbach, and today I'm speaking with my guest, Jeremy Kai. Jeremy is the founder of Italic, a revolutionary marketplace that connects consumers with luxury and premium grade products from the same manufacturers as leading brands, and they do it for 50 to 80% less than what competitors charge. Italic was also named one of Fast Company's 10 most innovative retail companies of 2021. I can personally tell you I've enjoyed shopping on Italic and find it super exciting. Thrilled to chat with Jeremy today. Thank you for joining us, Jeremy. Thanks so much for having me, Nicole. Yeah, let's go ahead and dive right in. So I have some questions for you. Can't wait to hear what you have to share with everyone. And I want to kick it off by you telling our listeners a little bit more about the Italic model and the products you offer consumers. Yeah, absolutely. So Italic looks and feels like a lot of other direct-to-consumer brands out there. You know, we have a fancy site. We say we cut out the middleman just like everyone else does. But um, I think beneath the the hood, we we take things up a little bit further um, in terms of uh, just how many middlemen we, we we remove and. Specifically in terms of the retail supply chain, you know, um, nowadays, uh, even if you take out um, distributors, which used to be a, a really big value uh, player in, in, in the supply chain, and you have the retailer and the brand, um, the majority of the direct-to-consumer margin today is still uh, in the form of brand markups. And they may have taken away 
you know, the, the historical retail markups, which may have gone from 20, 30% down to let's call it five to 10% now and in, in, in direct to consumer um, kind of overall portfolio margins. But what we do is we uh, look at the remaining pie, which um, really the majority of which is, is the brand margin. And we want to do away with that as well, um, while still offering the same quality of customer experience, quality of product that matches or exceeds um, those of other top you know, not just direct to consumer brands, but also legacy brands, you know, luxury brands. So um, our our business really uh, offers a couple of departments. So we offer, you know, uh, women's apparel, women's accessories, small leather goods, um, men's clothing and accessories, home goods, bed, bath, kitchen, beauty products, skincare. Um, and and the unique innovation we, we bring to it is by removing the, the brands, we go to the same manufacturers as these high-end brands, but we're able to partner with them directly and offer you know equivalent quality products for a whole lot less and uh, it's not for everyone uh, there's there's certainly you know people out there who really want the logo really want the brand you know and that's not a a vertical we we, we do very well in but on the flip side um, we're really centered around offering great value products so um, people who care about quality um, but also care about price and and not at um, not sacrificing e- either of those yeah i love that and there's certainly a consumer audience for that so you've you found it and it's a great job so can you share the journey to founding Italics? So what sparked the idea and what was your experience lifting things off the ground? Sure. Italic came about from uh, actually uh, a family history. So my parents both uh, are your classic immigrants, um, you know, came here from uh, Asia, uh, let's call it 45, 50 years ago. And really they pursued the American dream, you know, wanted to come here and, and start their own company, which they ended up doing after a roundabout uh, series of, of things that didn't do too hot. So um, electrical engineering, a cheesecake brand, a, a vegan cheesecake brand before I think people knew what, you know, soy or vegan really was. And, uh, and they found their way towards manufacturing. Um, so my mother started a manufacturing business together with her brother, my uncle, um, you know, quite a while ago and, and over the past couple of decades. And really, you know, since the time I was born, that's what they had been working on. And, and really the, the conversations around the dinner table often centered around, um, you know, how does the supply chain work? How do we get more clients? How do we expand our business with our existing clients? You know, so on and so forth. And after, you know, really living through manufacturing like that for so long, you start to ask a couple of questions, namely, hey, we're producing these finished goods, you know, for someone else who buys it from us, we take our cut, you know, typically is 15, 20% on top of cost of goods, but they'll buy it from us and they'll sell it for five, 10 times what what we sold it to them for. And the longer you do that, the more you start wondering, hey, uh, are, are, are we able to get a piece of that pie? And uh, as a manufacturer, you know, and this isn't unique to, to my family business, but as a manufacturer, you, you really only have a couple of ways to, to make more money or to grow. And that's one by getting new clients, like I mentioned, uh, or second, you know, expanding your, your, your client book, um, neither of which is particularly uh, easy. And then especially in a field that's as commoditized, as commercialized and as competitive as manufacturing is, you know, um, uh, it's not really a great um Frankly, it's a it's a it's a very bad business to to be in um, nine times out of ten. Um, so for me, uh, you know, I, I have your classic tech background. Um, started a another company prior to Italic, and this was around the same time as I think two interesting technology trends. One was the shift from a lot of the um, 
the verticalized services to marketplace approaches. So that's why you have like the Airbnbs and, and Ubers of the world coming out and really having what I think of as their golden era in the, let's say the 2013 to 2018 you know, quarter. And then on the flip side, you also had the second wave of direct-to-consumer brands come out around the same time. You know, in the early, uh, uh, I guess, 2008 to 2011, you know, period, you had Bonobos, you had Everlane, you know, a bunch of the the early kind of direct to consumer crops that we all have become aware of nowadays. But um, the 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 game really, I think, accelerated quite a lot in in the 2013 to 2018 period. So, for us at least, for Italic, we started just thinking about okay, on one hand. Um, consumers are a lot more um, interested or at least informed to be purchasing online. A lot of the infrastructure, a lot of the consumer education that's been done by now. Um, and then on the flip side, you know, manufacturers have been doing this age old business for not just decades, but hundreds of years this way, they pass through the value chain and ultimately reach to a customer and the internet really can um, change a lot of the, the way they do things just like it did in, in um, lodging and in, in hotels, just like it did in transportation. Um, you know, with those couple of examples, you know, there's nothing um, that prevents uh, retail from from undergoing the same you know innovation. So for Italic, at least, that really was a confluence of both, and and really it came from a standpoint of how do we help manufacturers, um, uh, and really in in the standpoint of uh, specifically how do we increase yield on what they already do without making them put in a lot of you know um, hard work, sweat and tears to build their own brand, which I can say from experience is, is near an impossibility for for manufacturers. And then on the consumer, how do we, you know, do away with a lot of the the traditional supply chain and offer them an equivalent experience and, and product, um, but for a whole lot less because we can disintermediate that supply chain and namely with the, the brand. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's a little bit about how Atella came about. It really came from, I think, a family, um, you know, experience with it. Well, and what's really interesting to me is that you're only, only founded Italic, I should say, at 23 years old. So, I mean, certainly a young man at that point, right? Still a young man. So I'm curious, did you face any challenges as a young entrepreneur entering the business world? Yeah, well, <laughs> I certainly don't feel young anymore. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think um, the, the nice thing about, so I'll say two things. On one hand, um, Italic's actually the the smaller of the the two companies I, I started. The, the first company by now is actually much larger than, than Italic um, in, in run rate and valuation and employee count and, and so on and so forth. The first one was um, an enterprise software company called Fountain. And that has all your you know classic stereotypical kind of tech bearings of, you know, I dropped out of college and, and moved to San Francisco and did a bunch of you know programs over there that got that company off the ground with my co-founder. But Italic really came about more so from a point of uh, passion and and um, and personal interest. You know, I, I like to say uh, oftentimes that people don't. Well, at least I certainly didn't really drop out of college to to go work on HR software, which is what uh, we were selling. So um, uh, and manufacturing hit a lot ho- closer to home for me. So I think that that's you know one thing is I, I did feel like I had the confidence by then to take a stab at um, Italic, which I think is actually a much, much, much more difficult problem to attack because of the sheer complexity of the supply chain and how many things can go wrong in the real world versus just in software. And then on the on the flip side, I, I think there's something magical about having the you know the mindset of of a of um, a naive uh, person in an industry versus how I am now, which is extremely jaded um, after years of of working in retail. Um, that you can you think you can really make a big difference. Um, 
and you don't have all that mental kind of baggage of, oh, this won't work or this, you know, this is impossible kind of preventing you from taking a stab at it. So um, I think in many ways I was fortunate in, in, in regards to italic is a, a particularly difficult business because we have a much larger SKU count than um, a normal um, brand does, but we also have um, very different business development and, and sourcing relationships than you know, a retailer or, or, or brand does because we work with manufacturers, not with you know um, uh, brands or, or boutiques. So um, I think for 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 the business, you know, that blend of experience with technology and and, and startups and how to you know uh, take a, a business from zero to one. Um, combined with the uh, naivete of, of not knowing how hard it would be, um, I think really gave me a, a really strong start. Not to say that you know others couldn't do it, but I think on the on the flip side, it, we I think we're uniquely positioned. And then combined with the manufacturing history, I think we just really understood it at a granular level compared to a lot of let's say retail veterans who may lack the tech experience or you know tech folks who who um, don't really understand manufacturing or product. Yeah, a lot of great insight there. That's super fascinating. And speaking of manufacturers, one of my favorite things about 2022 is that we are finally getting back to live person events. And one event Rethinker Retail is especially looking forward to this year is Shop Talk Europe. Taking place June 6th through 8th at Excel London, Shop Talk Europe is the new home for Europe's retail and grocery changemakers. The event is expected to see over 2,500 decision makers from leading retailers and brands. You'll also see startups, tech firms, investors, media like Rethink Retail, and analysts from around the world. Yes, we are all coming together to learn, network, collaborate, and evolve. The event will host more than 200 industry speakers. And if that wasn't enough to keep you busy... More than 250 companies will be showcasing the latest trends and innovations that are transforming the global retail sector. Qualifying retailers and brands can attend Shop Talk Europe for free and receive up to a 500 pound travel reimbursement through Shop Talk's world renowned hosted meeting program. For more information to see the lineup, or to register your company, shoptalkeurope.com is the place to visit. Again, that is shoptalkeurope.com. You have worked with some of the world's most reputable luxury brands. So how have you been able to cultivate those relationships? Yeah, maybe to clarify this, I, I wouldn't say we, we work directly with them, but rather we work with the same manufacturers who kind of operate behind the scenes um, of a lot of them. And I can also say with a uh, with a, a, a bit of a sly smile here that, you know, I, I'm sure we're, we don't have many fans in the retail world for, for good reason, because we, you know, offer what we think is is just as good of product and experience, but for a lower price point. So um I think in terms of the the way you know we we partner and, and find those manufacturers specifically, um, it's uh, it's it's been um, really challenging actually. Uh, manufacturing even to this day is still a hugely relationships driven business, um, as I'm sure many you know listeners can probably attest to. You have to go through many people. Um, it's it's hugely offline. We we work with now about 70, 80 manufacturers and. 
I, I like the, I have this little anecdote here, which I always like to say is 10 of them are publicly, you know, listed companies. And of those 10, let's say like seven or eight don't even have websites. So it's, you know, it's, it's an incredibly antiquated and, and uh, even to this day, family driven business. Um, there's a lot of kind of second generation, third generation, now fourth or fifth generation owners who uh, may want to shake things up a little bit differently than let's say prior generations do. So um, I think for, for us, like the first step in the process is just, okay, we want to develop a product in this category. Let's say it's betting. Um, the first thing we would do is try to find through our networks and, and through our sourcing. Uh, and, and there's a lot of technology and software around this as well by now. Um, how, how do we get in front of the best manufacturers possible in that category who can produce the best possible quality product and still uh, meet the scale requirements of like professionalized manufacturing, which typically we're talking about each individual manufacturing doing, let's say, north of 10, 20, 30 million um, of, of inventory uh, value, which um, uh, by the time it hits retail, might be more like uh, 50 or 100 million. Um, and that's minimum. So I, I think for, for us, you know, each category, typically that limits the um, you know, total number of folks you can get in front of. I think the hard part is for us, okay, let's say we got in front of them. What we're really doing, and, and this is why I think it's been so challenging, is a lot of these manufacturers are 50, 60 years old, um, and they've been doing things a very particular way for that entire period, right? We take an, an order, we get a deposit from the, um, a new, let's say it's a new client. Um, we have payment terms on that. Um, we use that deposit to go fund our you know, materials, our labor, our equipment, rents, and, and so on and so forth. And then we produce it, we get it to you, and we take home 15, 20% on top of the inventory value. Uh, which of course the brand will over time negotiate down and and our margins degrade with scale, or so at least that's that's how the narrative goes. I think the the, the danger of that model, um, as we've all seen in a more increasingly fragile supply chain um, and, and globalized economy, is hey, let's say you know you have a tariff war. Let's say um, you know uh, there's there's ocean freight issues. Let's say you know. Um, uh, uh, one of your marquee clients switches to a different manufacturer, one of your competitors, you know, overnight that can be 20, 30% of your business erased. So, uh, and you have labor to pay for. So I think for, for Italic, our pitch is more so, Hey, here's a way to kind of get away from your traditional uh, wholesale routes. That's still going to be probably the majority of your business for the foreseeable future, but here's a way to start, um, you know, owning a little bit more of your own destiny. And, and what I mean by that specifically is on Italic, our manufacturers are our partners. We don't treat them as our, our vendors. And they're really merchants on our mar marketplace where they take inventory risk and we provide them with our fulfillment network, our software orchestration, you know, so on and so forth to um, essentially operate as a direct-to-consumer brand on Italic um, or under Italic, I should say. But the the secret sauce is you know, they get higher margins that way by selling directly to consumers. So really from a manufacturer perspective, it's like, hey, I'm making a dollar per unit on this one product on Italic, I can make $2 a unit. And that might mean nothing to a customer, but to a manufacturer, we literally just doubled their, uh, we typically try to double or triple their margins. So uh, that does start adding up over time. Absolutely. Strong margins are ideal, right? So You've kind of touched on some of what I'm about to ask you, but how does your development team determine which new products to bring to market? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's been interesting because we operate both as a brand in, in, in many regards because we don't have, you know, we it, within a single category, we don't have hundreds of products like let's say a retailer or, you know, traditional marketplace might be. So that's why I like to think of it as a managed marketplace um, underneath the hood. But on the flip side, 
and it's not like a brand where we only have one hero product or, or a one hero, hero category that we're operating in. So we have to you know, be pretty flexible in terms of the way that we um, can bring development expertise and pricing expertise into, and also arguably just as important marketing expertise into, you know, categories where today we're not very well known for. So for example, when we started, we started in uh, leather handbags and over time we added a whole lot to that. So now, you know, we have uh, a really great skincare assortment. Um, you know, we, we have um, a resort grade kind of bedding assortment. Um, we, we have luggage, um, you know, and, and over time, I, I can say we've had a lot of misses too. We haven't had a, a perfect hit rate by any means. Um, I wish we did, but um, really in terms of how we decide what, what products um, to make, it ultimately stems, um, I think, from a, a retail philosophy of either you're customer driven or you're merchant driven. And, um, and I think both work. So I'm not saying that one is better than the other, but in our case, um, you can uh, probably hear from me, like I am not someone who um, uh, is going to pretend to know what the next big trend will be or try to taste make my way into you know, having the perfect assortment. Um, where we have technology roots, that's where a lot of our um, you know, mentality and mindset comes from. And I think the, the the point there is we're customer driven. So the way we do this, at least, is we look at three things. One is uh, we offer a membership program. So typically that um, uh, is a representative of uh, that cohort is a representative of our most loyal, most engaged customers and highest value. Uh, we have our our one times, you know, two time customers and then or new customers. And then we have people who um, are passively interested. So let's say they've been on the subscriber list or, or something of the sort. Um, and we'll do surveys. We'll just constantly be looking for inputs to calibrate our merchandising model um, to say, okay, um, what are we missing? What do you want from us? The number one complaint we always have across all three of those customer groups is um, you don't have what we're what what I want, and that's why I haven't bought yet. So um, when we ask them, okay, what do you want? The the results really inform how we think about things. So um, on the member and, and customer level. Generally, it's variations of existing products or variations of existing categories um, that are naturally adjacent. So let's say we have sheets. Okay, let's do duvets um, or inserts. Um, okay, we have down comforters. Let's do a down alternative version. You know, um, and generally we, we look at the impact of, of that um, relative to the customer base. So, hey, if we introduce this, what is our confidence level in lifting our revenue you know, by X percent? So it's actually worth our time. And of course, this isn't special to us. I just think we have a little bit more, you know, controls around this and, and process around this because we've been doing it for a little bit um, compared to, you know, um, let's say someone who who has a single brand and a single category and expects the second category to perform just as well as the first. I think by now we have um, a pretty tried and true playbook of, of introducing product that actually does hit as, as we expect it to. Um, and then on the, on the subscriber list, that's typically uh, areas where they're not necessarily adjacent or variations of existing categories, but rather um, net new. So for example, skincare is, is an, um, uh, a net new category that we didn't have for the first two and a half, three years. And then when we introduced it, a lot of, we saw a lot of behavior from the people who were passively, you know, on our list, um, switch into actual purchasing behavior. So um, I think it's a really data-driven approach to merchandising that still blends a bit of art and science because ultimately you can't predict the future. But I think we've put in some some good people and some good process and some good software to um, help us uh, with our decision-making there. Nice. You definitely have a lot going on and that has proven itself with the rapid growth you guys have seen since launching in 2018. Um, so I'm curious, I mean, you definitely have a 
savvy marketing team. So how does Italic brand itself on social media specifically? Yeah, well, I'm glad you think that because I don't know if I, I would necessarily agree. I think, um, you know, we're, we're still the, 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 the small kid on the block. Like we, we, no one knows us. Um, we're, we're still, I, I can't say no one, uh, but, but, you know, for, 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 for retail, at least, I think the realization we've had over the years is, Hey, um, we can't pretend to operate as like a luxury brand because we're not there's a whole legacy of decades and decades of brand marketing that went into creating these brands that everyone knows and loves today. Um, and really what we're trying to do is, um, you know, siphon off a little bit of the prestige or the leer um, out of that and, and say, Hey, look, like this is just as good, but doesn't have the logo. Do you want it or not? So um, I think for us, you know, the, the, the two things that um, have worked at least are, um, you know, one, uh, how, how about this? One thing that has not worked for us is trying to appeal to everyone. I think this has been a really hard lesson for us to learn, um, which is customers think of what we offer in a very particular way. We call it luxury without labels. Um, and I think the second we veer away from that and we veer away from our core customer, um, who is a uh, 30 to 40 year old woman, you know, relatively high income living in a big city um, or a, a wealthy suburb, you know, things fall off pretty quickly and, and the value proposition doesn't resonate um, as, as well. So I think for, for us, you know, the, 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 the two things that really have worked are one reinforcing our value-based um, value proposition again and again and again, and also being explicitly clear that um, it isn't, you know, for everyone, but it, if, if, if you are looking for, you know, elegant, um, beautifully designed, really high quality product that isn't the cheapest in the market, but is compared to its competitors, really great value. Um, I think that's where our marketing really shines. Um, and then on the second one, you know, we are the new kid on the block. We have a chip on our shoulders. So um, naturally we, we want to ruffle a bit of feathers in, a, in what is otherwise, I think, a very high ego, um, you know, uh, industry and also an incredibly competitive industry where everyone else is vying for your attention. I think naturally we have to play the game. So um, I, I think on, on that side, you know, are there campaigns, are there things that um, uh, people do differently that may break with the, the, the popular notion at the time? Uh, to give you kind of a, a couple of examples, one thing I, I think that's been interesting is I, I think the uh, retail and, and direct consumer industry is, is very, um, I want to call it cheapish in, in many ways. Um, in, in the sense of there are these popular like trends that appear and then disappear just as fast. So, you know, five years ago, that was, hey, everyone, if you have to go operate a, a, a retail store, you know, rent is the new CAC, as, as many people put it. Um, a couple of years ago, you know, it was everyone rushed to, to podcast ads. You know, you have to do that. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, it's like we got to diversify off Facebook like it's, it's do or die. And the reality is like, yeah, there might be truth to, to a lot of those things, but I think you can't apply them universally on, on every brand. So for us, at least, um, I think what we found is we are not uh, a cool brand, right? Like we, we, we don't have that cachet. That's not, I think we've tried to, and every time we've tried, it does not work. Um, and instead, I think what we really want to just reinforce again and again is, hey, you're looking for a rational purchase. Um, you want quality. You want great price. Okay, here it is. And, uh, and I think the places we, we operate as a result of that, so let's say Reddit or Pinterest or you know, performance marketing um, are going to be very, look very different than, let's say, someone who's a lot more brand driven. And that works for them. You know? So um, I, I think for us, like, that's how we thought about it. And the result actually is that we have a very small, basically non-existing um, brand marketing team. And instead, we, we focus predominantly on 
you know, community and, and um, performance marketing. Yeah. And so you gave a lot of great insight there. So I'm going to skip the next question I had for you, which was about giving some marketing activations because you, you really kind of gave us some thoughts there. So I'm going to move ahead. And what's next for iTalent? I'm super curious. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I wish I knew, which is probably a bad answer to give as a CEO. But the, the, the big lesson I, I've learned um, in retail, at least, is that you can't brute force it in the same way that you can in, in a lot of other kind of tech-enabled um, industries with sheer money and, and cash. And, and we've seen this happen in a lot of our, our peers, right? Where you raise a ton of money, you, you go to market really aggressively. And let's say you have a couple of years of really strong growth, you know, um, top line doubling, tripling, quadrupling year over year. Um, but then it's kind of a shark fin, right? Things fall off pretty quickly. Um, and uh, and I think, you know, if we weren't careful, and, and this isn't just for us, I think if a lot of brands aren't careful, um, uh, and you try to do too much uh, too too quickly, you can be in a in a world of hurt. So I think for us, you know, the the realization, and this is kind of counter to a lot of my own personal, you know, uh, personality and, and values, is we have to be patient. Um, our strategy, I think, we've tried to shift so many times, and the reality is, um, the strategy isn't actually what's going to make or break the business. It's the execution of the strategy for a long period of time. So. Um, I think for us, like what we're, what I can say confidently is uh, italic today, italic next year, italic, you know, hopefully in five years, um, probably will look relatively the same. Uh, we want to be offering really high quality, great products that people really love. And, 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 you know, we want to be serving our customers constantly better um, than we were yesterday. Um, and really our, our business conceptually underneath the hood, and this is the whole point of a marketplace is a flywheel. So the more customers we have, um, the more you know volume we can drive to our manufacturers, the more manufacturers uh, we have with them, and the more leverage we have, you know, the more products we can offer to our customers, and eventually maybe even services. So I think it's just going to be more products, better quality, lower prices, faster shipping, better customer experience, and and just compounding that for you know the next couple of years, and and potentially into new categories and, and new products. But really, the core of it will probably remain the same, which is you know luxury without labels. I love that luxury without labels. Well, Jeremy, you have shed so much insight to um, the growth of Italic and your mindset and what we can look forward to. So thank you so much for chatting today. Yeah, Nicole, thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.